Hey, Trumpcast listeners, what you are about to hear is a teaser for our latest Trumpcast Plus episode. We've made one out of every four episodes exclusive to Trumpcast Plus subscribers, and they get to hear it and all the episodes without ads. To hear the whole thing, go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and sign up. We really need your signups more than ever, and it costs so little. It's only $35 for the first year. It's peanuts. And you get Trumpcast and all of Slate's podcasts ad-free. Just going to say one more time, I hate to pass the hat, but we really are relying on subscribers this time. And this is easy to remember. Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus to sign up. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So I was lying in bed last night, finished with all the rituals one performs to shore up one's fragments against this ruin, ablutions at the sink, changing out of pajamas into other pajamas, a crossword puzzle to stave off mental atrophy in vain. When all of a sudden I reviewed the words of General James Mattis, excoriating Trump. And then I went over the words of President Barack Obama, praising the George Floyd protesters. And then I went through some 538 polls floating around in my head. And I thought the most evil eye inviting words, the words I hadn't dared myself to think in, in ever, which are the tide is turning. Okay. Now I want to inhale every syllable back in because the evil eye is around. And this is me still in bed, musing as the clock ticked toward the suicide hour of 3 a.m. I thought, have I thought or said that before? (sighs) When there was a slim chance that the Hamilton electors wouldn't actually vote illegitimate President Trump in. Remember that first hope? When Comey was fired and Mueller was appointed, maybe I thought it then. When ethics whistleblowers and mental health professionals insisted Trump be held accountable or be thrown out under the 25th Amendment? What about when I thought briefly that judges or justices might stand up to him or his criminal cohort? How about in 2018 when the new Democratic House swept in promising impeachment? Or when the Mueller report with its indictments of Trump's inner circle came out and spelled out Trump's treachery? What about when all of his media sycophants were exposed as frauds? Remember Milo Yiannopoulos, Alex Jones? Or what about when Trump's poll numbers were world historically dismal all along? How about then? Did I think the tide was turning then? How about when the House actually did get its airtight case for impeachment over the Ukraine matter and brought it to the Senate? Maybe then I remember thinking he'd get a trial and be removed. Or what about all along when foreign leaders laughed at him and humiliated him? Maybe Trump would be kicked out of the G7 or NATO or censured by the UN or tried at The Hague for putting kids in cages. And what about when he seemed intent on killing Americans with COVID to secure his reelection? Surely his cabinet would remove him under the 25th Amendment. Then isn't recommending intravenous bleach enough to prove you're insane? And then... Having boasted of his knack with the Dow, the Dow plummeted and one in four workers were out of work. They still are. Maybe then, maybe last month, the White House would be stormed or some Republicans who care about Americans would decide he should be actually tried on the articles of impeachment after all. Was the tide turning then? No, no, and infinitely no. Trump's support dropped but stuck. The Republicans were body snatched and went mad and betrayed all the principles of liberal democracy, then clunk all of their own professed principles, then clunk 
all the baseline infrastructure of the human brain and reason. Fox News wingnuts went over to OAN, or is it OANN, whatever that thing is, and the Kremlin kept punching through reality. So ordinary Americans got a distorted view of everything from hydroxychloroquine to political activism to JFK Jr., because their hero was no longer uh, Jesus Christ, but Q. No tide turned. But then last night, back to last night, so I reviewed the president's bed-shitting performance in Lafayette Square. Remember, he bobbled a Bible and brought out riot police to put down some flower children and Episcopalians who just wanted the police beatings to stop? I thought about how Senator Tom Cotton, last night in an editorial in the New York Times, continues to try to tangle up the protests in his weird racist scenario where radical chic people in $200,000 Mercedes are looting their local H&Ms and, let me get this straight, need to be gunned down by tanks and something, something airborne. And the whole thing looked like, as the great Karen Schwartz, who rarely works blue, said that President Trump was stepping on his own dick. I don't know why, but that's a hugely funny expression to me right now, either because I'm off the stony end or because it's just perfectly apt and accurate. Maybe, maybe Trump has now made such a hash of things, dignity, justice, America, that it's plain as day and the polls are right. Trump is more widely loathed than any president in American history, and he's going down. What's more? Support for Black Lives Matter is surging. That's just the facts. The House and Senate are working on packages for police reform championed for years by Black Lives Matter, proposing changes that have widespread support to eliminate chokeholds, create accountability incentives for cops to report other cops, remove police immunity from civil suits, make the Brady lists of rogue test-aligned cops available to the public, require cops to have malpractice insurance, and in short, finally listen to Black Lives Matter and reduce the power of the police to subjugate and even murder Black people. And also, it can make police forces less attractive to white supremacists who, according to an FBI report, join police forces for just that reason, to express their white supremacy. So these reforms are in the air. The BLM protests, the spectacle of people marching in the streets, which both Yasha Monk and Gary Kasparov have said on this show is what brings down a tyrant, and the new boldness by Trump critics like James Mattis and Trump monitors like Twitter, combined with this clunky decline in Trump's approval ratings by Republicans and Democrats alike, I don't want to say turning. Let's say the tide is wavering. It's like a A global wave poised at the crest between this and that, but leaning toward that. Turn, tide, turn. So with all this on our plate, I've got two guests today. First is Siva Vaidyanathan, who teaches at UVA, writes a column for Wired, and is the author of Antisocial Media and the Googleization of Everything. Siva is going to talk with me about Facebook and its role in this catastrophe. And then to talk about another catastrophe, the dread Bill Barr, that's America's depraved attorney general. I have Mattatias Schwartz, a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine, who has a new profile out of Bill Barr. And I look forward to talking to both of them. First off, welcome to Trumpcast, Siva. Thank you. It's uh, it's nice to talk to you again. It is very good to have you back. And also, full disclosure for listeners, we are colleagues, longtime friends, and certainly fellow travelers in the world of uh, tech and Facebook. Yeah, 
And democracy. and Democracy also, an interest, a side interest. <laughs> I meant to say we're at Wired, and you have, a, you have a really terrific piece in Wired dealing with, it's hard to know what to call it now, the, um, I was going to say the crisis at Facebook, but it's more like it's been a crisis for many, many years, moral crisis. But right now, certain features of the empire and certainly of the emperor are surfacing as never before. That's right. You're the author of this really terrific book, Antisocial, about Facebook. But you said you've learned something even from Zuckerberg's latest moves that added to your portrait of him. And I want to hear about that. Yeah. You know, when, when I was researching the sort of core motivations, right? I was trying to understand the core motivations of, of Mark Zuckerberg and the ways that they were built into the the workings of the company, right? Baked into the algorithms, baked into the structure of the firm, baked into the vision for the company, right? I spent a lot of time looking through his speeches, his posts on Facebook, his his uh, op-eds, um, any any public statement he had made since he was in college. And uh, I was I was aided by this amazing collection run out of the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee called the Zuckerberg Files. And it, it you know it gave me access to all of this material. And, and so my goal here was to try to look for patterns, themes, consistencies over the years, even as he matured, even as the company changed, as the company found itself stumbling in certain areas. And I was able to distill a few things. And, and one of the things I, I thought I was pretty confident about was the fact that Mark Zuckerberg was fundamentally an idealist about human nature, an idealist about his own uh, contribution to uh, our daily lives and an idealist uh, about the power of communication, right? The power of connectivity, of mm -hmm. community, and of communication. That, that that was the one consistent thing. He truly believed, and I think actually still believes, that if he can just get us to talk to each other, to mm -hmm. recognize each other, we won't hate each other. I, food will taste better. I don't know what. Like good things are going <laughs> to flow from this, right? That, that connectivity, putting people together, is what will resolve problems, conflict, allow us to think through our problems, allow us to imagine new possibilities. All those great things flow from that, right? Of course, to believe this, you have to ignore basically human history, you know, which neighbors ate each other and raped each other and did horrible things to each other despite knowing each other quite mm -hmm. well. You you have to ignore current events, right? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, around the world and in our cities, we find people who live in close proximity doing terrible things to each other in our yeah, houses, right? Connecting can, is also a term from boxing. <laughs> right. <laughs> Connecting is a term from boxing. Um, community, his favorite new word for the past two years, mm. it's all, been all about community. And he's been, he's been pushing people into Facebook groups, right? Community mm. is uh, a loaded term to any sociologist, right? Any mm. sociologist knows that the formation and maintenance of community can be highly coercive, can be highly oppressive, can be mm. dangerous to women and children. Uh, and, uh, you know, other groups, right? There, there are ways in which community involves a process of shunning and harassment and threats and violence, mm -hmm. as well as the process of communing, which is the lovely part of it, right? So mm -hmm. this sort of lack of complexity to me led me to two conclusions. One, that he's fundamentally uneducated, right? Prep school aside, fundamentally uneducated, does not grasp the varieties of hum human cruelty, does not grasp 
the complexities of human social behavior, thinks we all live the same way and want the same things, right? Yeah. Thinks that we are at least mechanistic enough that uh, we can be programmed and measured. You know, I've quoted you on that, and I feel like that is a fundamental insight that I sort of missed because he's associated so closely with Harvard. Facebook is associated with Harvard. Um, How could you be kind of illiterate on, uh, you know, philosophy, sociology, human letters, and even just the richness and imagination required to fathom moral, make moral decisions, which, you know, we're still committed after all these years to believing comes from reading, and that he doesn't have that. So this is a Davos guy. I mean, he's leapt over so many steps in his education. It must be you know, the education of a king or a queen, like we saw in The Crown, there's a lot of tutors. And I remember you volunteered to tutor him. <laughs> right, if you right. want me to at least give you a syllabus, <laughs> you know, as a professor at UVA, as you are, you volunteered to do that. I don't think he took you up on it. No, no, no. <laughs> but, you know, look, it's not that the guy doesn't read books and it's not that the guy didn't go to some of the finest schools in the world and drop out of one of them, in fact. but And it's not even that he doesn't have a degree, because education and the granting of degrees or the earning of degrees are not the same thing, right? And, and education and reading a stack of books aren't the same thing. Education mm-hmm. requires the give and take, the challenging of one's core beliefs, the doubt, right? Ed- doubt is a core part of education. Mm-hmm. Those of us who consider ourselves educated like to reflect on our moments of doubt, our moments of crisis, our mo- moments of contradiction, the moments mm-hmm. in which everything we thought we believed suddenly crumbles and we have to rebuild it, perhaps with a more solid structure, perhaps in a more modest way, right? Education is in, should be a process of building modesty uh, mm-hmm. when looking out on the world. At least that's what I try to impart to my students and what I hope for myself. And I know that you've lived your life in similar ways, constantly checking yourself. And that is what the educated among us do. And it is... Um, Sometimes debilitating, you know, but but it's yeah. often the the path to wisdom, and it's and in the collective, right? If we have enough people who are educated in that way, um, we have the ability to put proper levels of friction and and breaks in some systems, so we don't all, you know, build out crazy things and hurt each other. But you know, his style of working in the world. Um, tolerates no such doubt, no such embrace of contradictions. So what's changed for me is not just watching him embrace Narendra Modi and Rodrigo Duterte and then most notoriously Donald Trump and, Mm -hmm. and actually actively help these people who seem on their surface to be so opposed to everything he believes in. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, that he has, actually a very different vision for himself and his role in the company and his company's role in the world. And I learned this from Stephen Levy's new book, oh, yeah. which is Facebook and Inside Story. And that is, you know, that he's so attached to his will to power. And, and it's something I didn't get from his public statements, right? Um, Stephen Levy was able to get it by looking at some of Zuckerberg's early notes about himself and his career by looking by talking to so many people who had grown up with him and around him by talking to people who had worked for him uh access i didn't have right but you know stephen levy who's also our colleague at wired is to my mind the finest technology reporter we've ever had and before that he was a 
music reporter at, St- at Rolling Stone and did all this amazing journalistic work long before he got on the tech beat. And he really dug in there and he did so patiently. It took many years to do it. And his book really revealed to me some things I had missed. Um, and that basically is that that idea that Zuckerberg's not just an idealist. He is that, but he is also power hungry. Uh, and he is so self-satisfied and so self-confident and so so committed to winning every game, every contest, every competition he's in. Tell this story about Carthage. I mean, his fetish for conquering Carthage. Um, <laughs> oh. I mean, that just the sort of Latinate Veni Vidi Vici approach to business was new to me. Yeah, you know, so uh, apparently he he used to say this at, at a moment when Google, with all of its power and money, was ready to launch what Google had hoped would be the big Facebook killer. Uh, you know, one of many social networks that Google ran out there and we all ignored. And Zuckerberg would rally his employees by saying in Latin that Carthage will be destroyed, right? This, this sort of, you know, militaristic vision of ultimate triumph, of showing no mercy. And to this day, you can hear Facebook employees talk about that moment in militaristic terms, that yes, we crushed them. You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know and that, along with the fact that he, he frequently used to you know, fire himself up and his, and his employees up by, by saying, you know, domination. That, that was his, his favorite phrase. And, and, and you can see in Levy's book throughout his uh, adult life that dominating at board games, dominating at, at negotiations over acquisitions of, uh, of Instagram and WhatsApp, uh, dominating in the uh, hiring and firing of people is really core to his personality. That was something, again, that I missed. And now I have to fold that into my vision of what Mark Zuckerberg is all about. And this is what connects him to Donald Trump. This is this is the mm-hmm. the insight I think I, I came to just this week as I reflected on the fact that, you know, in the middle of this, this interlocking crises, global crises of a, a economic depression and a, a, a deadly pandemic, and, and now you know, violence in our streets, police Mm -hmm. instilled racial violence. At this moment of crisis, he gets on the phone with the president and they have a pleasant chat. And this is months after he had a pleasant dinner at the White House. And I'm thinking, you know, why isn't Zuckerberg behaving like any other decent human being? Yeah in the face of the malevolence of Donald Trump and, mm-hmm. and incompetence of Donald Trump. And it's not just that he fears regulation, because I don't actually believe he fears regulation. Uh, I, I think that he actually communes, to use the community uh, uh, root again, with Donald Trump. They share something. And what they share is that will to power, that that affection for the vision of dominating, right? They have a way of understanding each other that you or I would, if we were in the room with either of these people, we would not be able to connect on that level, never never living that life of domination, never folding that into our core vision for ourselves and for society. That I think explains it. And, and that's one of the things that we see time and time again. So it's not just that Zuckerberg is capitulating to Trump every time he refuses to follow his own rules when it comes to the dangerous things that Trump states on Facebook and Twitter. It's that he actually doesn't want to get in this guy's way. 
So that was a teaser. Don't you want to hear the whole show tantalizing? You can. Just go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus and sign up. That's slate.com slash Trumpcast plus.